All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started here. Today we are going to finish up Perseverance of the Saints, and we are going to begin Effective Particular Redemption, sometimes tragically in my mind called Limited Atonement, as we close out our series on the so-called doctrines of grace in the 16, as outlined by the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Let me pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and get into it. Lord God, we are grateful to be able to gather and to return uh, to these great truths, to these doctrines, and we pray that these are not just intellectual exercises, but this is theology that leads to doxology, to worship, to help us have a greater understanding of who you are that causes our hearts to be captured by your glory and, and therefore our lives inescapably influenced by that. And so we pray that you would give us attention toward that end this morning, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Okay, so um, we finished up last time talking about how the means of salvation understanding of the warnings, and I, have, I do not have time to rehearse that at all, past saying that my understanding is that the warnings of Scripture do tr the ifs, if, then, this, do truly threaten um, death, eternal death, hell to believers, but that they are effective means of preserving uh, believers, just like uh, a poison, a label, kind of skull and crossbones on a poison bottle is an, is an effective way to keep people from drinking it. So too, the warnings of Scripture are actually part of God's means of preservation. God has not chosen to preserve the elect simply by snapping his fingers, by removing us from the world, by glorifying us and making us sinless. No, he's the, the means that he has chosen, at least one of them, is the Holy Spirit. And in, particularly, in particular, excuse me, the warnings of Scripture that say, hey, keep on going. And I made a distinction between the warnings being something to guard us uh, from losing something that we already have or that we've already been given back in the past. And I said that that's the wrong way to look at it. Instead, the warnings are preserving us for something that believers genuinely do not have, genuinely do not have. And so if you were reading along with us in the Philippians reading on the RBC app, Paul says this so clearly. He says, not that I have already attained it or have already been made perfect, but I press on forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead. He understands that there is a future-orientedness to salvation. Not to be confused with um, being declared righteous, but there is a future-orientedness to it, and that he is striving to attain that, and that's what warnings do. They are effectively used by God to preserve the elect so that none should perish. Okay, so we looked at how that applied to some of the other warning passages, and we looked at the... Uh, uh, book of Hebrews. I want to briefly look at a couple of examples of purported apostasy. We talked about 1 John 2.19 and the uh, the mixed audience expectation and exhortations. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For, for they were, if they were of us, they would have continued with us. But by their going out, they made it plain that all are not of us. That sounds like a mouthful, but what he's saying is, if you if they went out from us, they demonstrated that they were never in. Someone who departs from the faith demonstrates that they were never in the faith. That's what he's saying. Someone who departs from walking in the light ultimately and finally demonstrates that they actually never were walking in the light. 
And then the reality of the fact that the New Testament letters are addressing congregations, and just like our congregation, us people who assemble here every morning, uh, uh, every Sunday morning, that is to say, we have people who are unbelievers. Now, Paul gives them uh, the benefit of the doubt in the way that he addresses them, but he's aware uh, he, he's aware that unbelievers are going to be hearing his words, especially in a book like Hebrews, where you have a Jewish audience who are strongly tempted to go back into Judaism, Jewish Christians, that is. Um, but Paul is, is not some fool. Paul understands that he is writing to the church at this together with the overseers and deacons. And when that letter is read, it's going to be read to people. Uh, and, and many people, including children, including adults, uh, who are going to hear those and not be Christians. And so warnings, uh, we shouldn't be surprised to see warnings in, the, in those books. Let's look at a couple of, let's, we already looked at the Hebrews example. Turn with me to Luke chapter 8. Turn with me to Luke chapter 8. I know that this has been a while since we've touched on this stuff. If it kind of seems like we're going to dip our toe into this and then leave the subject, that is exactly what we're doing, but it's because we've been uh, on this for a while. So if this Sunday school feels, this part, it feels a little bit awkward. I apologize. It's just how, uh, it's just how it has to be. So the parable of the sower in Luke's account, and I've chosen Luke's account for very specific reasons, says this. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from uh, town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on the rock, and as it grew, it withered away because it had no moisture, and some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it uh, and choked it, and some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he says these things, he called out, as he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, and then Jesus is going to give the interpretation here. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are the ones who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe it for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature and as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Let me just say a couple of things about this. And the reason we're talking about this is sometimes that a couple of these seeds are mentioned as examples of, well, here are seeds that were living and then kind of fell away in the parable, right? And so you could have a believer. The, the idea is this, the seed was sown into someone's heart. They accepted the word, you know, it was growing and all the rest, and then they, they, they fell away, and they kind of, they lapsed out, they, they died, they apostatized. Um, so everyone agrees that the, the, the first group of folks, the first group of seeds, um, does, is, is not actually, well, actually, I'm not saying everyone, I, I should need to, I need to just not say that. Let's just look at the first group, okay? So we're out to sow. Some fell among the rock, and as it grew, it withered away because it had no moisture. Now, when Jesus interprets that, listen to how he describes this, and this is one of the reasons I chose Luke 8, Luke's account. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so they may not believe. 
and be saved. The whole point is the devil kept it from in the language of the parable. These are people who have not believed at all. Okay, they so they it says they will they have not be they, so they will not believe and be saved. So clearly, this first group of folks is not a group of folks who are saved. The second and some fell on the rock. I'm sorry, and some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. Okay, and then listen to what Jesus said in verse 13. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they heard the word, received it with joy, but these have no root. And this is what it says. It says they believe for a while. It doesn't say they believe, comma, something like they believed. They just believed for a while. No, it's they believed for a while. That's the idea. They believed for a while. It's not they believed. And then after a while, this happened. They believed for a while. The while describes how they believed, the manner in which they believed. Okay, They believed for their while, a while. Their belief was not the same as the last seed, as the last group. Excuse me, let's go to 14 first. As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of the world, and their fruit does not mature. So there's people who are fruitless. These aren't people who have fruit that, that comes out of their people who are fruitless folks. And then finally, as for the good soil, uh, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart. And this is the one that contrasts with all of the other ones. The people who are in the good soil who bear fruit, unlike the fruitless folks, accept the word with an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So I think it's, it's, it is a huge reach. First of all, we're in a parable anyways. But second of all, it's a huge reach, even with how Jesus explains it, to suggest that the ones who have fallen away here are those who have fully embraced the gospel, have truly believed it, are saved, and then fall away. All the evidence suggests the opposite, that in these cases, these people are fruitless people. They are people who have been kept from believing. They are people who are not saved. And there are people who only believe for a while, as opposed to the enduring belief of those who, uh, who with a patient, honest, and good heart, bear fruit. Okay, so I don't think trying to appeal to the parable of the soils as an example of people being able to fall away has any uh, really has any punch whatsoever. Any questions about that before I go on to the uh, to the next text here? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's someone who goes along. Yeah, it's someone who believes, but they don't believe they don't believe it convictionally. Someone who, who kind of entertains it. I mean, they believe it. It, it, it may be something like, um, I'm trying to think of something that I've believed for a while. You believe it because you've heard it. You believed it because people are doing it. And if someone asked you, you probably even said, yeah, yeah, of course. I believe that. But then when it comes, you know, here's a great example. Oh, that's, that's a kind of a, might be a really personal example for some people. But let me just say, I, I, this is probably a really personal example. And if, if this hits you in a very hurtful spot in your life, I really apologize. This is, I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. Let me just say, I'll tell you in a great example of belief, believing for a while. Someone who is adamantly pro-life until their 16-year-old daughter gets pregnant. And now they're running down to Planned Parenthood, which of course no longer Tennessee, to get a problem fixed. 
Oh, no, I believe this. And then when the trials of life come, now, of course, this is talking different context here. All of a sudden, I believe this thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then it comes knocking at my door and things get hard for me relative to my belief. And all of a sudden, it's like, eh, okay, maybe I don't believe that so much. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But he, I think he's asking, what does it look like to say they believe for a while? Yeah, yeah, but you're absolutely right. That is exactly what they are. Does that does my example make sense for you though? Okay. Yeah. 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 I think that's another. I think that'd be another way to do it. It's just kind of you're going along. I mean, you believe it. You don't really have grounds for believing it. It seems like everyone else is believing it. Hey, this seems like a good thing. But all of a sudden, this person hasn't counted the cost. Hasn't counted the cost. And in the language here, when the trials of life come in, they uh, they fall away. The time of testing. It's like, wait a second. I'm not willing to die for this. I'm not willing to have my family torn apart for this. I didn't know that this was part of it. I did believe it, but I'm gonna. And so they get into it, and they're like, "No, I'm not, I'm not actually all in. I'm not actually all in." Good question. Any other questions? Okay. Well, I'm gonna let me just make a quick call about whether or not I want to skip this next one. Yeah, I don't want to skip it because it's, just, it's one that you need to know about. Let's turn with me to uh, 2 Timothy, please. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. I'm tempted to move along quickly here, but I do. I, I don't want to. This, is, this one in particular is a good one. Okay. Paul is quoting a saying that he esteems as trustworthy. And this is what he says. After he's saying, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, they may attain, the salva- attain salvation, way to glory. And then he gives this, uh, he gives this um, saying that has obviously been passed down, and it sounds like something that would have been repeated orally, right? If we have died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure with him, we'll also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Now, the question is this, what exactly, no, no one really has a ton of questions about uh, the first part there, but what about 12b and 13a, or really just 13? If we deny him, he will deny us, all right? I've already said that as a part of my understanding of the warning passages, I think that's true. I think that's true. I think anyone who denies Jesus is going to go to hell. He's going to get denied by the Father, Okay. Uh, if we deny him, he will also deny us. I don't think that has to be. Uh, I think I could look. I don't have a problem looking at a crowd of believers saying that because I'm, they're not going to deny him. Okay? But it is nevertheless true. It is nevertheless true. It's a call to faithfulness. It's a call to faithfulness. But what do you make of the next verse, though? If we deny him, he will deny us. Okay, so if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Well, that sounds a lot like a, the exact opposite of the line before it, doesn't it? If we deny him, he's going to deny us. But if we're faithless to him, in distinction somehow from denying him, he'll be faithful to us. So which one is it? If I deny Jesus, will he be faithful to me? If I deny him, will, will he deny me? That's the idea. 
Okay, yes. Okay, so, okay, so, so you're giving away my, so tell me about that. Tell me about that. He will be faithful to what? Yes. Okay. So I think that that is exactly, I tried to, I'm trying to present it in the light of the uh, potential objector, but that is exactly what I believe is going on here. Um, That if we are faithless, he remains faithful, um, not meaning that uh, someone who denies him is somehow going to, in the span of just one verse there, uh, not even a, 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 yeah, I guess the span of one verse, he changes his mind, but that someone denying Christ, uh, somebody denying God is not changing God's plans. It's not changing God's promises. It's not changing his commitment to bless. And as mo- multiple commentators has pointed out, it, it does, he, part of his promises is that those who deny him, he will deny. He will be also faithful in his promises of judgment as well. Yeah. Yes, sir. What would his denial of us It would be Christ, yeah, I'm not your advocate. This would be this would be a, a eschatological kind of condemnation judgment to get denied ultimately before the Father. Yeah. Yeah, so if we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless he remains faithful. Romans 3, 3, or 1 through 3 is a great parallel, by the way, if you're a scribbler in your Bible. Listen to the same language here. Paul is asking about the advantage of the Jew. He says, then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Then verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness, which is the noun form here, nullify the faithfulness of God? It's like, no. Just because there were people who were unfaithful to God and what he's proclaimed and how he's told them to live doesn't mean that God isn't faithful to do what he said he's going to do, both in salvation and in judgment. Someone denying God doesn't make God out to be a liar. It doesn't make him out to be weak. It doesn't make him out to someone who can't accomplish his promises. And I think that that's what Paul's saying here. Uh, and so I, I, don't, uh, I don't think that this is the uh, ultimate example of, well, we can live in, in the... In, of course, the folks in the free grace movement latch onto this verse and say, listen, you can be faithless and God will still be faithful to you. That's why we're going over this one. Okay? We're faithless. He remains faithful. And so we can, if, of course, we are, if we deny him, he will deny us. I've given my explanation of that. If we're faithless, he remains faithful. I would say that does not at all mean that people can abandon the faith all, uh, and for and some of the quotes that I've given you throughout this series, and um, for all practical purposes, even live like an unbeliever, be an unbeliever, reject the gospel, but he'll still be faithful. And some people have used this verse to try to support that. It simply is just not there. It's just not there. Um, okay. I decided to think, I'm so glad I decided that. Let me just see, make sure I Okay. All right. So there are a couple more that I intentionally skipped, and it's just because um, basically what you think about some of these cases is going to be determined by all the things that we have already discussed. So you have Hymenaeus, Alexander, Philetus, Demas, and 2 Timothy 2.4. It says he's in love with the present world, deserts Paul. 
There's just that's about all we know about Demas. There's just nothing to he says he's in love with the world. We're gonna see today in John. Whew, you don't want to be in love with the world. The Father's not even in you. I don't have any reason to think that Demas was uh, uh, a believer. And it doesn't say even even on the text's own language, it doesn't say Demas in love with the world deserted Christ. It says Demas in love with the world deserted Paul as a ministry companion. Okay, that's two very different things anyway. So I don't think there's anything there. I don't want to spend a lot of time on Hymenaeus, Alexander, Philetus, and Demas. Uh, because really what you think about those cases is going to be determined by the groundwork that we've already laid. All right? Well, let's transition into limited atonement. Limited atonement. Um, I'll confess I don't like the term def- uh, limited atonement. I think it is misleading. I don't think that it is wrong and it, it properly understood, but it's a misleading uh, It's a misleading word. Oh, we got to re-engage the PowerPoint here. There we go. Let's look at a couple of definitions. Uh, uh, well, this is a couple of paragraphs from the confession that touch on definite atonement in the section, chapter 8, on the work of Christ. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifices of himself, which he through the eternal spirit offered once, excuse me, eternal spirit once offered up to God, has fully satisfied the justice of God, procured reconciliation, and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given to him. So he has purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. We'll read one more here. 8.8. To all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption, he does certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them, uniting them to himself by his spirit, revealing to them in and by his word the mystery of salvation, persuading them to believe and obey, governing their hearts by his word and spirit, and overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation. How he's going to interact with people and all of free and absolute grace without any condition foreseen in them to procure it. That last part is ruling out uh, some kind of um, uh, atonement and really by extension, I think in this case, election based on foresight. Uh, And so the, the... why I don't like limited atonement, and you don't see limited here, do you? Do you see limited in what the confession says? Anything about limited? What you see is effectual. What you see is the language of the atonement actually working. That the atonement actually does something. Why is this the last doctrine to be discussed if it is the L in tulip? Okay, familiar with everyone's familiar with tulip, right? The, the, the little uh, acronym for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance, sense. Why have we done it out of order? Well, I've done it obviously very intentionally out of order. Let me first explain why. The first is that historically speaking, the Reformed tradition has meaningful attestation to so-called four-point Calvinism. And thus, whether one holds to limited effective atonement is not a determining factor in whether or not they can be considered reformed. Okay? Now, I don't think, historically, four-point Calvinism is not called four-point Calvinism. It's called one of two other things. But whether or not Calvin believed indefinite atonement is something that the Calvin scholars go back and forth about. I've read the Institute's 
I'm not sure. I also am not a Calvin scholar. I didn't go back to the Institutes to try to clarify, because if I'm honest, I don't really care. But what is definitely true is that Theodore Beza, who followed Calvin and interpreted Calvin as kind of his lead pupil, certainly and unequivocally um, not only held a definite atonement himself, but said that Calvin did as well. And I did read a, one scholar who does not hold a definite atonement who said when the dust settles, most of the folks do think that Calvin would have sided with Beza on, the de on a definite atonement, but that we just can't be sure. But certainly it was Theodore Beza who made it crystal clear and extremely explicit that this is what he believed Calvin to teach and certainly what he believed. However, Within the Reformed tradition, both in England and in um, France, uh, there were two other understandings of the atonement coming out of the uh, coming out of the Reformation that could properly be called Reformed. One was, and and uh, I know, in these like the Southern, un, the, the way people say this is just Moses Amaro. His French name, I tried to get Katie Butler to tell me how she would say it, and she sounded, it sounded so nice when she said it, but it was like, Mose Amiros, I can't do it, all right? But Amaraldinism or Amaraldianism, either one, you will, see them as, you will see it as both. That was one. And then you have uh, uh, Usher and John Davenant with hypothetical universalism. These are both, um, these are both versions of... Uh, four-point Calvinism. They are both versions of what you might say something like unlimited atonement or potential atonement. They're a little bit different, okay? Moses um, uh, Mo uh, Moses, um, uh, Moses Amaro said, listen, there are actually two divine decrees. There is a decree to conditionally save the elect on the basis of faith, and there is a separate decree to give them the faith. So election is conditional, on faith, but then God's the one who supplies the faith. Okay, and so and so the idea is that uh, the in, in the atonement, Christ died for everyone who would have faith. For everyone who would have faith, and then they are given the faith. Usher and Davenant had a much simpler version. Their understanding was that Christ made a way. Christ died for sin. He paid his, he he paid the uh, 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 he paid the price for sin for everybody. You just got to come in there and take advantage of it. That's the idea. Okay. So both of the in both of these critically I want to be very clear in both of these Jesus did not the, the atonement did not actually accomplish something for people. It might have satisfied God's wrath, paid a ransom for sin but it did not effectually accomplish its end, okay? It potentially accomplished its end, and I'm going to give you an example of, I'm going to give you an illustration further down in our time today about how you can think about that if that doesn't make sense. So we're discussing this. First reason we're discussing this last, because there are people within the Reformed tradition, particularly the Anglican, uh, Reformed Anglicans, uh, and, and then some of the uh, the, the French, well, developed out of the French form, but there are plenty of four point uh, uh, four point Calvinistic Baptists now. But this does have this does have meaningful attestation within the Reformed tradition. So I think it would be a huge mistake to say that it would be you know if you're if you don't hold to definite atonement, you weren't one of the particular Baptists in church history that you weren't Reformed. I think that's really narrowing what people 
what what what, what uh, historically would be considered reform. That's the one reason we're talking about it at the end. The second is this discussion about the extent of the atonement seems to come logically after one's view of what the atonement is and what it accomplished more generally, which is not the focus of this series. You might, you might think something like this. Well, hold on. You're asking me about the extent of the atonement? Like, what, what, what's atonement? Don't you, don't you have to like understand what atonement is? Doesn't it seem like you need to understand what atonement is before you talk about how, ex, like how many people it atoned for? It seems to me, yeah. I mean, that, that's how, what it seems to me. Um, and I'm not saying it's necessarily impossible to do it the other way around, but we have a uh, we have an Old Testament filled with atonement and the idea of atonement, and so it seems like what you think atonement was, uh, well, there's no thinking. What you think atonement was or is plays a huge role in this discussion. Could it, is it that atonement paid a ransom to Satan? Is it that atonement paid a ransom to Satan? This is kind of the picture you see in uh, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with Aslan on the stone table, paying a debt to the White Witch. The White Witch, right? Isn't that her? And then, um, but it was the deeper magic that she didn't know about, and, and Aslan kind of pulled one over on her because he's the man. And that and that's that that was kind of the that's kind of the idea the ransom theory. There is evidence of there are elements of ransom certainly in the early church. Well, what about an example that the what the atonement accomplished was that God looked down and said, "I need to make a, a moral example of how to live, how to die, how to be humble." Okay, this is a the, the Christ died here not to satisfy divine justice but to provide an example for moral living. it's more con- the, the atonement was concerned about the future moving forward, not what had happened in the, not what had happened um, in the past. What about the governmental theory of atonement? This is the idea that God set the world up in a particular way, and the motivation for atonement was actually external to God. I mean God's like, well, I've got to follow my own rules here. This is just the way things are, and so I've got this is, has to be the correct piece of the puzzle if I'm going to be someone who um, keeps the order, the moral order, you might say, uh, in the universe that I've created. What about satisfaction? That Jesus satisfied the wrath or the justice of God. Or is it penal substitution? That Jesus stood in our place and took the punishment. All right, so here I am. I'm about to go get, you know, the firing squad is about to send me to a, a timely death. And then Jesus steps up in my place and takes the firing squad for me. So he gets punished instead of me. That is penal substitution. Or is it all of them? Is it, are there elements of all of these things in the atonement? I'm not sure about all of them, but I would suggest to you, and we don't have, it, we don't have time to do this. This is why I'm saving this to the end. Because I'm going to like tell you what I think and not defend it at all. I'm just going to move on. I'm going to tell. I think that there are elements of all of these things in the atonement. It is true that Jesus died to destroy the work of the devil. It is true that in my place condemned he 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 stood that he was uh, uh, that he was uh, smitten for our transgressions and upon him were the chastisement that brought us peace. Right. 
um, by his stripes that were, were healed. You see a, a clear, you, then you see First Peter talking, of, quoting that from uh, Isaiah 53, that he bore our sins on the tree. Their substitution, their certain, Jesus certainly served as an example. I'm not sure that that was the purpose of the atonement at all. Um, and then certainly there is satisfaction that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. Jesus says, if you don't believe, the wrath of God is still on you. So there are elements of all of these things, all right? But zeroing in, let's zero in, because the, the I would say the dominant view throughout church history, and certainly the evangelical view and the Reformed view, um, is that the atonement is characterized primarily by penal substitution that satisfies the wrath of God. Penal substitution that satisfies the wrath of God. But let's zero in, because you might think, okay, well now it's simple. Now, now we've got a beat on this thing. You know, Tyler skipped the reasoning, but here we are. Let's just assume penal substitution, which is what everyone has heard growing up anyways. Well, unfortunately, it doesn't get easy automatically. Why is that? Um, this is why. This is why right here. Because God is not literally a creditor who exacts debt or is paid. How commercially... How how um, how commercially are we supposed to understand the payment and debt metaphors in nature and application with regards to the atonement? So, um, well, you're going to see this. You're going to see this as we go through. I'm not going to give it away right now. How literally are we supposed to take these like debt and creditor these the money language, canceling debt? owing payment, etc. How literally are we supposed to take those things? And when you start asking that question, you can go to two sides of the, you can go to uh, kind of drive off into two ditches very, very quickly with not at all literally or overly literally, and both cause a lot of problems. And we're going to talk about some of those problems as we move on. But let me ask this though. If Jesus died for a definite set of people, would he have had to pay more if there had been one more elect person, like someone paying the debt of one more insolvent apartment tenant? Okay? If there are a bunch of people in debt, and I pay someone's debt, if there was one more person in debt, I would need to pay a little bit more. That's how it works. That's how paying off debt works for individual people. Christ, perhaps Christ uh, would have had to suffer a little bit more. Maybe if there was a little bit, uh, if there were less elect, he wouldn't have had to suffer quite as much. Is that pushing the imagery a little too far? Well, what about this? If, a, if the atonement was retributive justice cast upon Christ as a substitute for the elect, did Christ receive the same punishment that we would have received if we did not repent and believe the gospel, and that's punishment understood as identical wrong, or did he receive a fitting punishment as determined by God, even if it was not identical to the one we received? If it was an identical return, why did it not last forever? Like the suffering those in hell, like the suffering of those in hell will endure. Jesus' suffering was not eternal. Should we think, however, that retributive justice is identical return? Uh, is, is that plausible if we would not punish someone's lie by lying to them? 
or punish someone stealing by stealing from them. In other words, what exactly is justice in this case? What is just punishment, rather? What is just punishment? And how does it relate to the creditor, debitor, debtor, excuse me, language? How tightly are we supposed to understand that? Here's another reason. At the moment a debt is canceled, no more forgiveness is needed. So everyone look up here. Don't read the rest. Ah, look up here. I'm looking at everyone's eyes. Okay, so you have a debt. I forgive your debt. It's gone forever in good faith. Now, does it make sense for you to ask me for forgiveness? Yes or no? No. What? For, to forgive what? You ask me to forgive your debt? There's no forgiveness. There's no forgiveness. I, I've already forgiven the debt. All right, now we can continue reading, okay? At the moment a debt is canceled, no more forgiveness is needed. If Jesus effectively canceled people's debt, how does forgiveness even make sense upon repentance and faith? If Jesus actually canceled debt at the cross, how does forgiveness even make sense? There isn't anything further to forgive. It's already been forgiven. Jesus, if Jesus' atonement actually did something and effectually did something instead of potentially doing something, then what is there to forgive? This was Richard Baxter's famous reply to Jonathan, uh, to John Owen, excuse me, in the death of in the death of death in the death of Christ. Richard Baxter, this is what he said. He said, This theology of the atonement promotes licentious living. Because the elect don't need forgiveness. Already been forgiven. Here's another way to state the same objection right here. A very similar way to state it. Um, if the work of Christ actually saved, as opposed to potentially saved, then the elect would not need to repent and believe. But faith is required to make the atonement effective. And therefore, the atonement has made sins forgivable, but it didn't forgive sins. We think about that. Did the atonement create an antidote for sin? Was the atonement a vaccine or an antidote that was created and set on the table before the world to whoever wanted to inject it to be saved from their sin? Or was the atonement something that when it happened, it purified people? One, potential. You see the vaccine or the antidote in the vial, does this save anyone so long as it's sitting right here? It doesn't do anything. It only potentially saves people. It potentially saves people. Okay? Is that what the atonement is? It, it, what, what Christ accomplished? And potentially no one could be saved. That's why I said that Jesus in one literal sense didn't die for anyone in that, in that view. Okay? He died for, to get rid of the disease. All of these questions come together before you can start talking about the extent of the atonement meaningfully. And you're right thinking, man, well, here's what I told Ben Scott. I was like, we're going to fly high on this one because if I tried to give a defense of all of this, we'd be on this one doctrine for 12 weeks and I'm not willing to do it. So I'm going to make some assumptions um, but even I can't, I can I do not have a bone in my body that is, is a, just trust me in most cases. Um, so I'm going to make some assumptions here, but I, I do want to show you some of these things in the text. Okay. 
Uh, the first is that penal substitution is a crucial aspect of what Christ accomplished in making atonement. I already mentioned Isaiah 53. Let me just read that one little part one more time. Um, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This is the same language that Peter uses over in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, 24, uh, 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 actually, there's actually two, isn't there? One's 2.24, one's 3.18. Let's see. The 2.24 is, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Peter quoting Isaiah 53. There is, and, and I'll leave you, if you want to go look at these other ones right here, First Corinthians 5.21, He made him to be sin and do not sin, then in him we come to righteousness of God. You can go, go look at this. Penal substitution. Penal substitution is a crucial aspect. That doesn't say it's the only aspect. It's a crucial aspect. Number two. Penal, again, just to be clear, meaning punishment, right? That's what penal is, like the penal system, the, the justice system. Um, and then substitute, that he stood in our place to take that punishment. Number two. Divine punishment is retributive, but not all punishment requires an identical return on sin. Not all just punishment requires an identical return on sin. It is more fittingly understood as an appropriate return on or answer to sin. Second um, Thessalonians, uh, I'm going the wrong way in my Bible, which is never. Thessalonians uh, tells us something about this divine justice. Paul says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just. What is it, what is it that God considers it just to do? To repay with affliction. To pay back. That's retributive. That's retribution. To pay back. To repay with affliction those who afflict you and grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire and inflicting vengeance, inflicting vengeance, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know the gospel, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Eternal destruction. Um, in Romans chapter twelve. Uh, we read that we are not to take matters into our own hands. Why is that? Beloved, never avenge. Why are we not to avenge? Why are we not to, to do back to people? But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. So the idea that divine punishment... And I've been marinating in a bunch of this literature here recently and, and watching a lot of the top... Uh, guys go back and forth on this. The idea that divine punishment is is rehabilitative, right? That's the, that's the move. That's the universalist move. Everyone goes through the fire, but everyone makes it out because they're restored through it. They're purified through it. All the gold makes it out of the fire. It's the other stuff that, you know, gets burned away. So the, but the idea that, the idea that uh, divine wrath here is uh, is rehabilitative, or, or that it is uh, restorative, 
is not the picture that we see. We see that uh, divine punishment is retributive. That divine punishment in the in the kind of eschatological sense uh, that that retributive justice is the kind of justice that God is executing. And you see even evidence for this with the lex talionis, the eye for eye principle in the Old Testament. And as it turns out, with, the, with potentially one exception, the eye for the eye principle was never understood to be literally the eye for eye. It was a, a more like a proverb that articulated a principle of proportionate justice. That when something had happened, that the, due pen, that the penalty do that should be in proportion to the crime that had happened. And so I don't think that you have to have an identical return uh, in order for there to be a, a complete and uh, perfect justice. For the same reason, I don't think you lie to someone who lied and you steal from someone who steal. In fact, if you steal from someone who steal, um, let's say they steal something from me and I, we take it back. Well, they still, I just got my stuff back. I didn't get compensated for my damages for my losses, right? So identical return, meaning what exactly you did is going to be done to you, I think is, is a broken understanding of how to do punishment, which is good. That's going to free us up to say how Christ satisfied the wrath of God on the cross, even though he wasn't there forever. That's not identical to the punishment of believers in hell, which presumably um, is, is, is what Jesus stood in the place of. How exactly does that work? We'll come back next time and try to sort through some of these things. I've got a couple other, um, I have, well, I have one other assumption, and then we're going to set up the context. I'm going to lay out a master argument, try to defend the premises, and then we're moving on. Okay? Is everyone sufficiently confused? Like, oh my goodness, what did I just listen to? Okay, that's okay. Lord Jesus, we pray for wisdom as we sort through these things. We thank you for the Lamb of God who takes away effectively the sins of the world. We are thankful um, for blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We're thankful to have an eternal redemption. And uh, we pray that you would uh, give us clarity and nuance as we sort through these things and seek to be faithful to the text um, of Scripture that you have given us with regard to the atonement and scope, its nature. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen.